How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to the broadcast today in studio. I have um, I have a guest that is not living, and you may know of him. He has a rather southern accent. He's been known for evangelism, and I just wanted Billy to greet us before we begin our broadcast. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come, hundreds of you. You simply get up out of your seats, and I want you to come. And for the many of you who have joined us tonight by television, we'd like to send you some literature. We'd like to send you a book that has been a blessing to tens of thousands of people around the world, written by Pastor Lutza. Just write to me, Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's all the address you need, just Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now until this same time next week, goodbye, and may the Lord bless you real good. How did he get away with that address, you think? Well, of course, he was so famous that all that he needed was Minneapolis, Minnesota. But there's got to be a postmaster general that didn't but, like that. <laughs> but I want to tell you something, Michael. Since you raised the issue of Billy Graham, I think people need to know this. At the age of 10, my siblings went to the first Billy Graham film, which was Mr. Texas. I know that you didn't see it. It I was Billy's first, first movie. Wait a minute. You're not shining me. It's called Mr. Texas. Mr. Texas. And I came back and I saw Billy on screen preaching to 20,000 or 40,000 in Rice Stadium, Houston, Texas. Wow. And I became a fan of Billy Graham. And my generation of teenagers was into Elvis and I was into Billy. Now, why do I mention that? I really do believe that every teenager needs a hero. I know that Jesus is the ultimate hero. Right. But I would caution everyone who's listening today, especially the young people, choose a good hero. Choose somebody whom you admire, somebody who has Christian character, somebody who perhaps in some way mirrors your own gifts, hmm. because we need those models. And Billy's impact in my life was absolutely huge. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer was the pastor at the great historic Moody Church. And, you know, Erwin, I find people don't understand that Moody Church and the Moody Bible Institute are two separate entities. But he was there almost 40 years as senior pastor. He earned his bachelor's of theology from the Winnipeg Bible College and a THM from our alma mater, Dallas Seminary, an MA in philosophy from Loyola, and he has an honorary literary doctorate from Simon Greenleaf School of Law. I won't list all the books he has written. Uh, what are you, close to 50? Well, you know, it depends how you count right. them. Some of them are smaller. Some of them have titles that have been redone. Many languages. Many different languages. So let's just say 30. Okay. That would be, okay. I think, a conservative number. Perhaps One Minute After You Die was, for a long time, your your top-selling book? Still is. Still is, yeah. And that's a book you need to read, and we'll have information in the show notes about these titles so you don't have to worry about writing or copying them. Another bestseller was Hitler's Cross, 
and Erwin and I were talking about the influence of Hitler before we started taping. Um, he has a radio program called Running to Win all over the United States and globally. He and his incredible wife, Rebecca, who's behind the glass and probably should be in here correcting Erwin. They have three grown daughters and eight grandchildren, and we have a special deal for you. There's a book called We Will Not Be Silenced that was just published by Harvest House Publishers. And this is only for in-context friends. If you go to christianbook.com, christianbook.com, and use the word silenced as a promo code, you can get that book for half price. And Christians always like a deal. Dr. Lutzer's here in Nashville doing a whole lot of things, and he was so kind to come over and do the podcast. So, Dr. Lutzer, thanks for being with us. Well, you know, Michael, I just want to say this, and to your audience that already knows this, the thing that I admire about you I'm sure that there are many things. The first time I heard you speak, the thing about your ministry is, first of all, it's an expository ministry, but we should not think of it as merely an exegesis of a passage of Scripture. You are always anxious to apply it, and this is so critical. My philosophy of preaching is essentially like yours, and here's my philosophy— I always said to myself as I was preparing a message, why should the lives of people who hear this be changed forever? Because the whole idea is not just to simply say this is what the Word says, but rather how does it apply and how does it bring about transformation? That's ultimately what we're all about when we exposit the Scriptures. Well, you and I had the benefit of having Dr. Howard Hendricks as one of our professors, and uh, he would often talk about the Christian community has a deficiency of vitamin A (laughs) application. And, uh, you know, that's not a popular topic today in preaching. They don't talk a lot about applying the Bible, do they? Well, you know, there are some people who certainly don't because they're interested only in what the text says without application. On the other hand, you find those who really don't care that much as to what the text says. They're into application. And the problem with that is oftentimes they are giving their own ideas and they are off on tangents. So what we need to do is to say we want to be faithful to the text, but we also want to speak to people. We want to see lives transformed by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to do both. And that's what I think pastors are called to do. Cut off from the scriptures, you find a lot of talks about social issues and what's going on in the culture, but no power, no strength from the Holy Spirit, just really human ideas with passages of scripture sometimes quoted to simply window dress. Like an appendage. Yeah, let's just tack that on for a point. Uh, We're in this series talking about biblical exposition and why I am so concerned, Erwin, about the lack of the loss of teaching scripture. And, And we can discuss, and you gave a great continuum, whether it's application only or exposition only or exegesis only, and how we need some kind of balance. I don't like the word balance, but we need to blend those things. You've been teaching for 40 plus years in various situations. Uh, You started out very early. What was it in your experience, your exposure that said, I want to learn to teach the Bible? And how did that start? Well, you know, I was a student at Winnipeg Bible College, and Elmer Towns was the president in my final year. And Elmer Towns said to me, Erwin, 
you should go to Dallas Seminary. Now, people need to realize I was born on a farm five miles from a town of 75 people in Saskatchewan, Canada. And when I went to Bible college, I'm not entirely sure that I had ever heard of Dallas Seminary. Why would I? Right. So Elmer Town saw potential in me. How old are you? Are you, what, 18, 17? Probably close to 20. 20? Wow. He saw potential in me, and he said, you should go to Dallas Seminary. And so I applied, and I was accepted. And I have to say that that far from home, I was very lonely for the first couple of weeks until I got to know the guys, and I began to, of course, attend class, and all that changed. And eventually, I did very well. But, Michael, because you're a grad of Dallas Seminary, you know Swiss Avenue. Yes. I remember in the first couple of days walking down Swiss Avenue, bawling, crying my eyes out out of fear that I was going to fail in the seminary. And uh, so that is really the part of my history. What people need to understand is this. There's a real disconnect between my upbringing, and the opportunities that God has given me. And I think that all of us need encouragement. Don't look at your past as if it's some kind of a limitation. It is God preparing you for another level of ministry, however that might look. And that applies to everyone, not just pastors. And we need to see the hand of God in our lives through his providence. And, you know, in my autobiography entitled, He Will Be the Preacher, because when I was in a crib sleeping, my mother said that the pastor's wife said in German to her, he will be the preacher. And as a result of that, in that book, what I do is... Was this because you were screaming loud when you cried? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember it. I don't even remember her. Being there, right. Because she went on to heaven long before I grew up. But here's the point. In that book where I tell the story of my life, there's one example of God's providence after another. Mm. But I want to share my heart with all who are listening. Oftentimes you don't see God's providence while you're going through an experience. You only see it afterwards. And you say, oh, God was putting together all kinds of a series of events whereby you would have opportunities that you would have never predicted So we need to see God even in the ordinary things of life, not just in the spectacular things. I use this little uh, algorithm of maturities. When you stop blaming the past, you own your present, and you plan your future. And uh, so many people live with legitimate wounds and hurts. They were victims, but isn't part of maturity getting beyond that, not living with that, is you're, you're not identified as a victim. You're a person for whom Christ died. And then owning your present. This is today. This is all I got. Now, what am I going to do if God gives me a tomorrow? And, and you articulated that well. Talk a little bit about providence. That's a word we, we kick around a bit. We talk about in God's providence. Let me give you an illustration from my own life. Rebecca and I are in Chicago, and I'm the pastor of a small Baptist church. I resigned in 1977 to teach full-time at Moody Bible Institute. The next Sunday, we woke up without a church to go to. I wanted to go to a different church, but Rebecca said, let's go to Moody Church, because I had come to know the pastor. Was, who was that Moody at the time? Church, was that Pastor Sweeting? Wearsby. Wearsby, okay. Wearsby. Yeah. 
And so I've often said, you know, whenever I hear the voice of God, it sounds an awful lot like Rebecca, okay? (laughs) So we went to church at Moody Church. Now, I dropped her and the two kids off because we only had two children at that time. And I said, I'll find a parking spot. But there was no parking. You know what that's like there. And I was going to go to a distant parking lot and come back. And lo and behold, somebody walks across the street, fidgets with his keys, backs out. I back in. I find Rebecca. And in the lobby, Wearsby is leaving with his coat on. He doesn't even see me. I see him, and I put my hand on his shoulder and said, Wearsby, what are you doing here? It's 10 minutes before the service. Erwin Lutzer, I'm sick. I'm on my way home. I want you to preach no. for me this morning. No, So the first time we ever attended Moody Church, you preached. I preached at Moody Church. I took an envelope. <laughs> and I wrote on the back of it. Had an anxiety attack, first of all, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, something very thrilling as well. Yes. I wrote at the back of an envelope an outline of a sermon I had preached on Psalm 1, which you, of course, know well, meditating in the law of the Lord day and night. And as I stood on that platform, I said in my heart, but only jokingly, If they ever ask me to be the pastor, I'll say yes. But of course, there was no reason for me to even think that that would ever happen. But within God's providence, that was one of the links that God put together by which I became the pastor. So that's an example of how God leads his dear children along. A parking space at the right time, at the right moment, that I would see Wearsby, and you can understand that a minute here or a minute there, right. and this wouldn't have happened. Right. So as I look back on my life, Michael, I have to just give God praise. What I have done and the opportunities I've had are all because of his undeserved grace, and I believe the prayers of my parents. Let me tell you, my parents were married for 77 years. You know, my father died at 106, my mother at 103. Now, I've often said that my parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. <laughs> but they were very godly people. It's their 70th wedding anniversary, the last one we celebrated, even though they uh, were together for 77 years. I'm sitting with my mother. I said, Mother, do you know the names of all of the kids that are running around here? You know, they were grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She just waved her hand like that and said, yes, I have a prayer list. And I mention them to our Heavenly Father every day. When she died, we found her prayer list. Not only children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but also missionaries. So I attribute my ministry to the prayers of my parents, but also the prayers of Rebecca. My wife, Rebecca, is a woman of prayer. When she tells people she's going to pray about something, she actually does pray. You know, we oftentimes say, oh, yeah, I'll I'll pray pray for you. I'll pray for you, and we don't. So when I look at it all, that's why, as far as I know my own heart, I want to take no credit for the things that I have done, because it has all been God's undeserved grace. There's a remarkable verse in 2 Corinthians, you can help me out here, where Paul mentions that our prayers help him. 
That's yeah, very... you also helping together by prayer, he says. And that always makes me pause and scratch my head and go, we just don't understand prayer. And uh, was it the Mennonites who said, pray until you've prayed? Gert Bahana said, I don't know what prayer is. I only know that prayer is. And you've written about prayer. I've written about prayer. It's one of the lost disciplines. But let's get back to the topic. This is too much fun. We're facing a generation, Irwin, and you have a little bit of time ahead of me. We're watching churches in America. And I don't mean just to pile on and criticize, but they have cast off the Bible. Maybe they have a topical series. Maybe they don't. But it's, you mentioned earlier, my word, it's an appendage to a point. And you made a comment yesterday when you taught here at Stonebridge Bible Church about interpreting the Scripture through the culture or interpreting the culture through the Scripture. So help us out. Help out you know, folks that maybe don't have a great Bible church around them. Maybe they don't know what to look for. How would you begin thinking through what's exposition? What, how, how does a church understand it? Why is it important? Some of your thoughts along these lines. Well, first of all, exposition is important because it's handling the Scripture in context. How do you like that you know, for I, a remark? I, I heard that word once, yeah. And so what you want to do is you want to understand what was being said to that generation. But then, of course, you also want to build a bridge to this generation. We talked about the transformation of lives. What many pastors do is they want to be known as woke. And I know that that word has many different meanings, but they want to show how that they are up to date with the culture. Would they ever preach a message on hell? You know, in the 36 years that I was at Moody Church, there were two or three times when I preached an entire message on hell. The night before I preached the messages, I could scarcely sleep because it is a very hard doctrine. But you see, there are many people, many pastors, who emphasize only the positive aspects of Christianity. And even if they do exposition, you know, they're talking about our inheritance in Christ and all that, which is very important. But they leave out the hard edges of the Christian faith. If you do expository messages, you are much more prone to cover all these difficult subjects rather than just selecting the kind that you want to preach about. Now, you and I may differ a little bit about this. I think that preaching topical messages is okay as long as it's done well, as long as it's done biblically. Sure. And there is such a thing, which I often have done, called topical exposition. So you're expounding it but you're expounding it in relationship so, to a certain So let me topic. interrupt for a second. We did a series when I was in Northern Virginia, D.C. on, uh, it was called If Only, and it was about if only I had enough money, if only I had enough health, and it was a stewardship package, and we picked passages. Sure. That was the main part of the package, but so the marketing, bad word, the marketing was if only. And so we would both align with there's a time for those kinds of things. You want to do a series on death and dying. You can certainly do that. One minute after you die. That's a, you should write a book on that. You know, but, but to think about these issues, and I appreciate that you've taught on hell, we can package them differently. But even that exposition is the idea of what's the text mean? How do we get at least a backdrop of what was Paul dealing with in Corinth? What was going on in King Asa's day? Do we understand 
Israel in the north and Judah in the south and the divided kingdom? Do we understand the cycles of these judges and that it was the worst time of Israel's history that ended in civil war? Do we understand enough of that backstory before we read that passage? And then for me, Erwin, and you know, correct me or, or expound on it, to me it makes it so much more vital and interesting and fascinating that God's word is eternal. And then you've introduced something else now. When you were president of Moody Bible Institute, I preached two messages at Founders Week entitled, Is God More Tolerant Than He Used to Be? Because what I needed to deal with is the fact that in the Old Testament, many people say God was harsh and uncaring. They stoned people for adultery. Well, we don't do that today. So I was trying to answer the question, why don't we do that today? So even there, you're talking about exposition, but it has to be done well in relationship to the New Testament and so forth so that people receive really what the totality of Scripture has to say. But I want to speak to those who perhaps attend a church where there is no exposition, where there is a pastor who may use passages of Scripture, but really they are being used to promote a certain agenda. There are ways today, especially because of the Internet, where you can go online and find some solid exposition, where you can find that there is food to be had in other ways. Other generations, of course, did not have that privilege. Our generation has that privilege. You can read books, and you can ask God for something that is oftentimes in short supply today, namely a spirit of discernment. Discernment means that I can listen to a sermon and I can understand what is being said that is accurate, but also to understand that there are some things there which are questionable. And a spirit of discernment is going to help you to understand that you can't just look to one place, especially today in our generation, for all of your spiritual food. There are other places that you can go to to fill in the gaps. When Paul wrote, to the Corinthians, some of Cephas, some of Apollos, some of Paul. Because Christ's been divided, preach Christ crucified, he'll say later on. That's nothing new. We mentioned some authors that we have uh, admiration for and respect for that maybe have changed their views uh, before we started recording. I don't vilify those people. I don't throw them under the bus publicly. But it breaks my heart, Erwin, that they move from the Bible and your term woke is, is an appropriate word because it's not just woke the way the media is shoving woke at us, but they, what was the Hendricks line is you don't make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And our efforts, it seems, to be relevant or to be up to date, you mentioned this, we kind of jettison, no, we don't kind of, we jettison the text. And what we have is the selective use of Scripture. Because you can find almost anything that you want to justify in the Bible. And so what we do is we go to those passages and we want to choose those that fit our agenda. The good thing about expository preaching is that what you do is you try to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You try to preach the scriptures the way they are written so that you don't get off on you know, some rabbit trails out there that you want to promote. Now, there are times when I have tried to find a passage of Scripture because I wanted to preach on a certain topic, but 
my desire was to handle that scripture responsibly and not simply use it as a pretext to say what I wanted to say. And if you look at today's culture, what is it that is being substituted for the gospel? If I might just share my heart for a moment about the present. When somebody says that social justice is a gospel issue, I have no idea what he means. So you have to ask him, and you hope that he doesn't mean what it seems as if he means, namely, that you have to do social justice or believe in social justice to be saved. I hope that he doesn't mean that. But do you see, Pastor Michael, when we attribute other kinds of terms and hook them to the word gospel, there's a lot of confusion out there. And somebody has to say with clarity that social justice at its best is not the gospel. So there needs to be clear thinking today because it is very much in vogue to talk about these things as gospel issues. The issues that are gospel issues, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again. He died to save us from our sins and to rescue us from the destruction to come. That really is the gospel. And let's keep that clear in an age of oftentimes very fuzzy and misleading thinking. We've seen in the last decade in particular in some of the homiletic literature, that's how we write and craft sermons, science, art, etc. You know, if you don't say gospel enough times in your sermon, you're not <laughs> you know, you're not preaching the gospel. And I, I find your point telling because nomenclature is everything. How we use language takes on meaning. And before long, it's like, well, he doesn't say gospel enough, or he's not Christ-centric enough. He didn't refer to Jesus every time he talked about a passage. And we're always on our heels, it seems. Many years ago, I was in, when we were in D.C., I attended one of these briefings where you go to a nice hotel and they bring political personalities and celebrities, and they share a little message. And, you know, it's an interesting experience about culture and policy and politics and so forth. And I was sitting by uh, one of the loudest radio voices in America, Christian radio voices. And I, I took the opportunity to say, you know, I love what you're doing, but I have one bone to pick with you. When you blame the pastor for everything, the church isn't doing this, the church isn't doing that. And, and I would transfer that today. You're not speaking about social justice, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, helping the poor, ending sex trafficking, so forth. If you don't speak about that, it's the church's fault. You endured some really difficult times early on at Moody Church with some of the activists in your time. Help us, not only as maybe teachers and pastors, but as church members, this stuff is swirling around everywhere, and social media makes it a flash paper. So how do we respond without getting vilified, ghosted, whitelisted, and yet having the courage to say, you know, I appreciate your comment. What do you mean by social gospel? What do you mean by critical race? But do I want to spend my time doing that? You know, Michael, you've raised an issue that you and I might disagree about. But the church oftentimes is vilified today for all of the problems all in the America. Ills. All the ills. Because the belief in America is this, that if the church would be what it was called to be, we'd always have freedom of religion. We wouldn't have same-sex marriage. We would have governments that would be 
favorable to Christianity. That has not been true historically. When Rebecca and I were in China in the mid-1980s, we were told by the man who was responsible for the Christian churches, he said, what you believe is what the people today in China, the Christians today in China believe. And then he said this, Michael, he said, persecution wiped out theological liberalism in China. And I thought, well, of course. I mean, what liberal would be willing to go to the wall for Jesus? But here's my point. There are Christians in China today who are calling up to God for grace in the midst of persecution and death and marginalization. And imprisonment. And imprisonment. And you know, (sighs) God has not seen to give them a government that is favorable to them. The church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism. So what we need to do is to recognize that certainly the church is at fault for many things. But we cannot simply lay all the blame at the foot of the church and say it's all your fault. You know, people are always asking me whether or not there's going to be a revival in America. And I think sometimes that question is asked for very selfish reasons. What they want to say is, is there going to be a revival to get us out of this mess so that we can have our homes and a better economy and an easier life for our children and so forth? God, you come and do something. Now, I've studied revival, and what I discovered is that when God really does send an actual revival, he does not bypass the church. He works through the church, through brokenness and repentance to bring about the revival. What people want today is a revival out there somewhere with all these unsaved politicians and all these unconverted people that God might somehow miraculously save them. No. When Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, when he was talking about the Spirit, of course, in the upper room discourse, he said this. When the Spirit comes to you, through you, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's going to happen through God's people, and some people who want revival would reject it when it came because suddenly God is going to take them apart piece by piece, and they weren't expecting that. They were thinking that they could just go on in the same old way, doing the same old thing, except that God would bring a revival so that life would be easier. I love this. And I often use the illustration that we're going to be 240-some years old, 45 years old this July 4th, and we are the most powerful, the most prosperous, arguably, on the planet. And that experiment could well be over. Uh, You mentioned persecution. Uh, Was it not Corey Ten Boom who prayed for the persecution of the American church? You made a comment yesterday that uh, a lot of people were chatting about afterwards about martyrdom. And we, we do have this idea if we have the right people and the right policies in office, the right people and the policies on school boards, etc., that we'll have a better country. But you made an observation about martyrdom. Yeah, you're actually bringing together, I think, two separate ideas, Michael. That's not uncommon for me. (laughs) First of all, regarding martyrdom, my comment was simply this, that we don't need freedom of religion in order to be faithful. And then I said, just ask the martyrs. 
They didn't have freedom of religion, and they were willing to go to the stake. But you did raise the issue of America. And you must remember that I was born and raised in Canada, but I am an American citizen. Thank you so much for welcoming me here in the great United States of America. One of the reasons I do want America to survive is because Americans give $400 billion a year to charity, okay? And you can go around the world, and all of these ministries that are preaching the gospel, they are all funded, I'm saying all, at least most of them, are funded by American funds. And if America goes down the tubes... I think to myself of all of the ministries that I know about, and there are many others that I don't know about, that simply will not survive. So God has blessed America in wonderful ways. And we hope that America does continue, does continue to be a country that is willing to have a sense of capitalism where wealth can be generated that can be shared with others. Now, are we full of sin and disobedience? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are guilty. But at the same time, I hope that the American experiment that you referred to does continue. When you look at at church history, um, whether it was the Holocaust, whether it was you have an interest in Nazi Germany and Hitler in particular, whether it was um, revivals that happened across Europe, we were in uh, Europe a couple of years ago, and a different tour I've ever done. It was actually just for a vacation over Christmas, and we did the the blue, the Rhine, which isn't really blue, but we did the and and these churches, Irwin, uh, most of them would be um, Byzantine. The architecture, the money, the grandeur, and now you have countries that, for all intents and purposes care nothing about God. And the churches are being purchased by Muslims and they're becoming mosques. Now, here's the interesting thing about Europe. Boy, have you ever raised a lot of issues with me today, I'm talking to the I'm talking to the, <laughs> the, the guru here. You, I got to get I, everything I, out I've of you. I've thought a lot about this regarding I know you Europe. have. On the one hand, when the church and state were united in Europe, and of course that happened all the way during the time of Constantine, actually, where he appointed bishops afterwards. And you have that terrible unity between church and state. It was good for Europe in terms of its culture. Europe had a unified Christian base where you could go from one country to another and it was quasi-Christian. Correct. But the downside was it destroyed the gospel. Because what happened is then, once you begin to have a bishop, or rather, once you begin to have an emperor appoint bishops, you know how politically corrupt all this is going to be. And if you forget the impact of Constantine, about 25 years ago, the pastor of All Souls Church in London London. was visiting me in Chicago. And I had lunch with him later, and I said, how did you become the pastor of All Souls Church? He said, Tony Blair, who was prime minister at that time, appointed me. I was shocked. Now, today, of course, they go to the church and say, who would you like to have? And so they approve it. But imagine the corruption when you have a head of state appointing people to pastorate. So anyway, our choir from Moody Church went to Norway. 
and we're singing in various churches, and I'm having lunch with one of the pastors and said, how did you become the pastor of this church? He said, the king of Norway appointed me. Goodness. So do you see the impact of Constantinianism? Yes. And of course, that corrupted the church, but what Europe did have was a unified culture. And all those beautiful cathedrals, they were all built because there was an honor given to Christianity and to Christ. Now, I'm on the subject here. Why was it that Islam was able to capture North Africa and totally wipe out the church? One of the reasons is because church and state were so closely united that when they went after the state, so to speak, and the institutionalization of Christianity, they destroyed the whole thing. My view is, and maybe others who know more would disagree, if the church had remained independent of the state, even in small groups, continuing to be faithful to God, the church might have been able to survive. But because it became a part of this larger entity called Christendom, when Christendom was destroyed, everything collapsed. We're kind of talking, and it's my fault because I enjoy talking to you too much about all kinds of other things. We're talking primarily about biblical exposition, the local church. You made another comment that I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, you and I both have the same love for Luther, for his story. I remind people often he was trying to reform the church, not break away and start a reformation movement, which, of course, what happens historically. But you made a comment about him and exposition that I'd love for you to unpack a little bit about his teaching the Bible and what he was up against. Well, thank you for asking me a question that I could answer in about a half an hour or two. The thing about Luther is you're right. Luther didn't intend to break from the church initially, but later on it became inevitable. Inevitable, yeah. Because what he was up against was an immovable object. And God used a man who was rough around the edges in many different ways to bring about that break. But the thing that really determined it was the Council of Worms, Worms actually in German, where Luther was there and he was asked to recant. And he said, give me until tomorrow. Michael, you ought to read the prayer. I wish that it were available to your audience. I could help you make it available to your audience that Luther prayed the night before. It would give you chills. Because he had no sense of God's presence. God, where do you live? Dark time for him. Dark time. Where do you live? Are you going to be there for me when I'm laid out on the rack and when my body is going to be burned? And he's just crying out to God for grace. And he goes there and there's the emperor, the Holy Roman Empire. Here are all the German princes. And they're all waiting for his answer. And he gives that famous answer, which every Christian boy and girl should know. Parents ought to teach their children. When he said, my conscience is taken captive by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant. So help me God. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And he believed he was to be put to death. Now, what happened is he was hold up in the Wartburg Castle. That's a separate story. It's a great story, yeah. But here's the point about Luther and exposition. What he basically did is when he preached in Wittenberg, he would read a passage of Scripture, 
and then expound it. And he expounded it oftentimes with imagination. Now, I have to tell you that in 2010, when I was leading a tour to the sites of the Reformation in Europe, we were in the church where Luther preached his last sermon. And um, I had notes. I uh, happened to bring with me a summary of his last sermon. And the man in charge, when I told him who I was, said, you can go to the pulpit and you can preach it. Oh, now, nice. I was preaching it only to the tour group it didn't that matter. was there, but it didn't matter. <laughs> I was standing in Luther's pulpit <laughs> preaching his last sermon. What was the sermon? Where it says, thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. And his last words in the sermon were this, I am weary and there is much more that I could say, but we have a wonderful gospel. That's a summary of Luther's last sermon. So his view was absolutely, and it was revolutionary, because all that the priests had done is read the book right. or whatever, was revolutionary. Give people the word of God. And that's what his heart and burden was in the last years of his life. So when we talk about exposition and in the local church and the way things have changed and the lack therein. You and I are talking to a young pastor. Maybe he's just gotten out of seminary thinking about an MDiv. What would you want him to do in a study Monday through Friday as he writes a message that he's going to give to God's people? Well, first of all, he has to read the text, obviously. He has to meditate on the text. He has to then check out commentaries he needs to know the passage. He needs to know the context. But then I would like to teach him how to package it. When I taught homiletics, and I did for a couple of years up at Trinity Seminary, I spent a lot of time in trying to help them to package their messages in a way that would really communicate with a congregation with unity, order, and progress. But I would also tell him that the preparation that he makes mentally is only part of what he has to do. The other part is his heart. If there are issues of sin in his life, if there are issues of disobedience, those have to be dealt with. You and I have had the experience of preaching, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit sometimes has been so powerful. You know, Spurgeon made the remark that I don't know what heaven is like, but it might be something like when I'm preaching the gospel. <laughs> you and I have had that experience, but we've also had the experience, at least I have, maybe you haven't, where something is wrong in our life, and we have to preach anyway. And so we push through the sermon, and we get it done, but in our heart of hearts, we know that the Holy Spirit did not have the freedom to connect. When I taught homiletics up at Trinity Seminary, on the first day of class as I was driving home, I said, Lord, give me some way to impress upon these students the need to depend upon you for the proclamation of the gospel. And just like that in my mind, the idea came, take them to a cemetery and teach them to preach to the dead. I thought that would be good training. So the next week I went up to Trinity I stopped at Deerfield, the city next door, and I uh, arbitrarily was going to go into a restaurant. The door opens, 
And I said uh, to the woman, I know that this is a very strange question, <laughs> but where's the cemetery here? She said, well, ask this man. He's the caretaker. Her husband was the caretaker. So he told me, you know, you drive down this street and then you go there and so forth. So on a beautiful day, I told the students, pack all your books, told them where to drive. I said, we're going to a cemetery. And I told them where it was. I gathered them together next to a tombstone, and I said, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we are dead in trespasses and sins. It also says that Ezekiel was asked to preach to dry bones. I want you to choose a tombstone and preach to the dead and tell them to rise, that the day of resurrection has come. Now, you have to understand that the color <laughs> drained from their faces. Later on, one of the students said, I was ready to bolt. I was ready to run because I went over to a tombstone and shouted, Jonathan, I think, died in 1917 or something. Jonathan, stand up. It's the day of resurrection. <laughs> and then I waited for a resurrection. And then I said to the students, you know why he didn't rise from the dead? He didn't hear me. If I had only preached louder, of course he'd have come forth. So I go over and I shout as loudly as I can, Jonathan, get up. It's the day of resurrection. And I wait for a resurrection. Thankfully, none happened. Then I said to the students, how do you think that made me feel? And they said, you know, that's really stupid. I said, yes. And that's how stupid you are every time you preach the gospel, because you are asking the dead to rise, the deaf to hear, and the blind to see. Now, how many of those miracles can you do? Thank you very much. Zero. But when Ezekiel began to preach, the bones came together, the spirit came together. I said, you have to get used to preaching to a cemetery and to remind yourself that God has to do the work. So after a 15-minute exposition, we all get on our knees on the grass, and we cry out to God for total, complete dependence upon him for the preaching of the gospel. Great. This is Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and I will talk to him more. I would talk to him all day long. I appreciate your scholarship, your study, your heart for the Lord, your heart for his word, your faithfulness. We'll have all the information about Erwin in the show notes, and you'll be able to hear him on our 10 questions coming forth. So, Erwin, thanks for coming by the studio today. It's an honor. I'm humbled to spend some time with you, my Thank friend. Thank you, Michael. Just wish that we had more time. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.